everyone, welcome back to the Perspectives on the Short Story podcast from FSU Panama City. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and in this episode we'll be discussing one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, James Joyce. This episode will be part one of a two-parter. In this first part, we'll be covering the author's life and influences. The second part will cover and analyze his story, Araby. Before we get started, let's lay some groundwork. Did you know... Ireland is not part of the United Kingdom. Well, at least most of it. Northern Ireland is an exception, but that was not always the case. So let's rewind back to the dawn of the 19th century. By this point, the Protestant Reformation had already had centuries to change the religious makeup of Europe. Henry VIII's church he created to get a marriage annulled stayed strong in England. However, not all of the people of the British Isles got on board. After all, Scotland became Presbyterian, Ireland remained Roman Catholic, and in 1798, Presbyterians and Roman Catholics came together to try and create an independent Ireland. Unfortunately, this revolt was not as successful as the colonies who had broken away from England just decades earlier. England quashed the cause and the Parliament's passed Acts of Union in 1800 and 1801 that merged Ireland with the United Kingdom. Well, passed after a failed attempt in 1799, followed by lots of bribes and cronyism. The 19th century was a roller coaster for the Irish, to say the least. The Napoleonic Wars brought in a period of economic prosperity, but several famines devastated the population throughout the century. The Great Famine from 1845 to 1851 in particular showcased the consequences of relying on only potatoes for food. But it should be noted that there is more to this. Small land holdings, an equal division of land among sons, and a burgeoning population led to potatoes being the only viable crop to grow. Enclosures made it difficult for common people to grow, and overgrazing ruined the fertility of the land. England's response wasn't really so helpful either. The Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, took a hands-off approach to the economy, riding the waves of an ill-gotten profit off of the lucrative Industrial Revolution. Ireland actually had a food surplus during this time, but most of it was exported thanks to this laissez-faire approach. Fun fact, several different groups of people actually did try to help the Irish during this time, including the Choctaw people in America, former enslaved people in the Caribbean, the Sultan Abdul Messid I of the Ottoman Empire, Queen Victoria, and Tsar Alexander II of Russia. A failed rebellion led by a group called the Young Irelanders arose midway through the famine. Frustrations were running high. Scores of peasant farmers and workers either succumbed to malnourishment or left for greener pastures. Those who endured the pain remembered their suffering and advocated for tenant farmer rights and land redistribution. Another result of the fallout was the significant decline in Irish literacy, That is, Irish as a language fell in usage. This was in part due to the institution of national schools around the 1830s set up by the English government where classes were exclusively offered in English. Because most of the affected population during the Great Famine was rural and poor, they could not keep the language in wide enough circulation to survive. In response, a Gaelic revival began near the end of the 19th century to try and bring back the language. This did not have the effect members of the Gaelic League, one of these nationalist organizations, would have hoped. 
Today, when we think of Irish people, we think of them speaking English with an Irish accent. Though unsuccessful in bringing back the language, Irish nationalists did achieve victories in Parliament. This is where the Home Rule League comes in. So many leagues. <laughs> Isaac Butt, and that his, his real name, two T's and all, is responsible for creating this league. Butt himself was a conservative barrister, or a lawyer. However, he is not the one who would bring this movement into mainstream recognition. After his death in 1879, Protestant landowner Charles Stuart Parnell took the movement and made it a major political force. It became known as the Irish Parliamentary Party and grew to become the major political party within Ireland, overtaking even the English Conservative and Liberal parties. The Irish Parliamentary Party campaigned for an autonomy rather than a clear-cut independence. Ireland would remain within the United Kingdom, but as a self-governing region, according to the party's goals. So, now that we are in the late 19th century, we are reaching the end of this historical contextualization. For those of you who know when James Joyce was born, or for those of you who are good at predicting when a section is ending, we have arrived at the author's conception. James Joyce was born in February 2nd, 1882, in Rathgar, a Dublin suburb. Joyce was the oldest of ten children. His parents were involved in Charles Stuart Parnell's Irish nationalist home rule movement. His father was a tax collector, which kept the family comfortably middle class. They even had servants. In this idyllic life, Joyce's mother was ten years younger than her husband and had a close relationship with her son. She was a devout Catholic and a source of support for the young Joyce. At the age of six, Joyce was sent off to a Catholic preparatory school, Clongo's Wood College. He was taught by Jesuits and generally had a pretty happy early life. Unfortunately, financial troubles rocked his family as his dad lost his job in part due to heavy drinking. Joyce left his first school, fees still unpaid, and was out of school for a year. His father did manage to get him into Belvedere College, another Jesuit school near Dublin. Family connections helped bring down the price of tuition. Once again, Joyce did well in school, excelling in English and learning French, Latin, and Italian. He was a devout Catholic, like his mother during this time, following his religious teachings closely. This straight and narrow path would widen as Joyce aged. He began to veer off the set course presented by his tutors and peers, and with that came less academic success. Instead, he spent more time getting to know the streets of Dublin. Joyce observed the wilting Georgian architecture and its inhabitants. This experience would inform his later works. In 1898, Joyce enrolled at University College, and that is its real name, University College if you can believe it, studying philosophy and languages. Safe to say, Joyce's diverging path continued to trouble his academic tenure. He would miss lectures and held low opinions of those giving them. He instead liked the exciting world of drama. Not real-life drama, though who doesn't enjoy hearing about the small-time feuds happening in their community that don't affect them? No, Joyce was interested in plays, particularly in the work of Henrik Ibsen. Ibsen was a Norwegian playwright and authored The Wild Duck, an 1884 play considered to be the first modern masterpiece in the genre of tragicomedy. Joyce loved Ibsen's work so much that he learned Norwegian so he could write to Ibsen. 
he used his newly learned linguistic skills to write an article for the Fortnightly Review, which he was well paid for. Joyce was successful. Ibsen responded appreciatively to the article. It was Joyce's first published print work too, a major milestone for any writer. The money he made from the article was enough to pay for a trip with his dad to London. Here, Joyce was exposed to more on the outside world, giving more access than ever to European literature. Now, shoddy old Ireland didn't seem so great in comparison now that he knew what other places were like. His peers at university didn't appreciate this Eurocentric alignment either. Joyce was isolated in his expanded knowledge of Europe. James Joyce graduated in 1902 and traveled to Paris to study medicine. He lacked the money to support his education, but that didn't stop him. With the published work under his belt, Joyce was more confident that he could probably make some money through writing. Well, as it turns out, it's pretty hard to get things published and make decent money consistently if you only have a single work to your name. Joyce would end up writing home to his family to ask for funds to continue his stay in Paris. During his stay, he experienced even more of the Europe he craved. He would even reject the Catholicism of his home, likely viewing it as restrictive against the more liberal life of Parisians. Eventually, after a few classes financed with the help of his family, he gave up on his medical pursuits and asked his family to pay for his return fare. He made it back to Dublin and found work reviewing books through his connection in Lady Gregory. Lady Gregory was a well-established figure in the Irish literary scene, and her help enabled him to earn enough to return to Paris. Misfortune would befall his mother just months after, however, forcing him back to Dublin once again. A telegram informed him she was dying. In Ireland, Joyce would have difficulty reconciling his newfound perception on life with the traditionalist desires of his mother. She wanted him to take communion and confess his sins on Easter, but Joyce held firm in his rejection of Catholicism. At her deathbed, Joyce's uncle asked him to pray for her, but he refused. Joyce's mother passed away, and he would come to regret his stubbornness later. The character of Stephen in A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man would similarly refuse his dying mother's wishes and express remorse later. The death took its toll on the young man. Like his father and many Dubliners, he fell into drinking. Instead of returning to Paris, Joyce would remain in Dublin, getting by on book reviews and teaching to put together a modest living. He soaked in the city and its buildings. Every little detail cemented itself within his mind. Joyce got to know both the people and the city intimately. In 1904, Joyce got to writing several works. In the summer of that year, he published short stories in a newspaper, The Irish Homestead, which would form the foundation of his later collection, Dubliners. Readers initially gave him a mixed reception, with some saying they found the stories confusing. And to be fair, I also found myself getting a little lost the first time I read Joyce's work. And if Dublin natives had trouble with his intricately true-to-Dublin prose, don't feel bad if you need to whip out spark notes for your reading sessions. Joyce graced pubs with his teener voice and even considered singing as an occupation, and was offered free lessons. Joyce was impossible to keep chained down, though, and he dropped the singing gig. During his stay, he would meet a tall, auburn-haired woman named Nora Barnacle. She was working as a hotel maid and caught his eye. The two struck up a conversation that blossomed into a full-blown relationship. Nora was quite different from Joyce. She was from a provincial town and had no interest in literature. Nonetheless, Nora stayed with Joyce for the rest of his life. She offered him support in her strength and steadfastness. The two of them eloped together, unmarried but devoted. 
Their behavior would have been very scandalous in the conservative Catholic Irish ecosystem. They journeyed together through London and Paris and ended up in Zurich. A friend had promised Joyce a job teaching English at the Berlitz School, but when he arrived there, the director informed him there was no such job opening. Uh-oh. Joyce managed to find a job opportunity at a school in Trieste, but there he got into an altercation with drunken sailors and was arrested. So yes, that answers your question as to what we would do with a drunken sailor. With the assistance of a British consul, Joyce got out of prison only to find that the job in Trieste was also a mirage. Removed from stable pay, Joyce ended up taking on tutoring and borrowed money. For the next decade, Trieste would become his home, and he quickly picked up the local dialect. His partner would become pregnant, complicating the already precarious tightrope life Joyce walked. Joyce washed away his stress with heavy drinking, trying his hardest not to think about his debts. Nora struggled in Italy, learning the language at a much slower rate. His son, Giorgio, was born in July of 1905. His brother, Stanislaus, was persuaded to join them soon after and help support the family through its financial hardships. In the uncertainty of Italy, Joyce's first poetry work was published in 1907. Chamber music was a small victory in a period of struggle. Joyce made his pilgrimage back to Dublin in 1909, taking Giorgio with him. Here, he reviewed a play and signed a contract with the publication of Dubliners. Following this, he would periodically return to Dublin. At one point, he fell for a cinema scheme set up by two Italians. The promise of big returns fizzled out, leaving Joyce with yet another source of debt. Dubliners, meanwhile, was in limbo. Publishers considered it to be too intimate and crude. His peers did not take kindly to their unflattering portrayals in the stories. This fomented Joyce's resentment of Dublin and its people. He left for a final time, never to return, in 1912. Cleansing himself of Dublin, things began to turn around for Joyce. In 1913, he got a letter from Ezra Pound, a well-known American poet, offering to help get a portrait of the artist as a young man published in an English magazine as a serial. Critics recognized Joyce's chops as a writer, but were mixed in his portrayal of early 20th century Dublin. With this major milestone, Joyce's streak continued with the publishing of Dubliners in 1914. Misfortune always found a way to interrupt Joyce's life, and the outbreak of World War I took away Stanislaus from the family. He was considered politically dangerous and thus was shipped off to a prison camp. Joyce was once again on his own with Nora to try and stay afloat. He lived off the patronage of his supporters, but even with the improved finances, Joyce just couldn't keep himself from accruing debts. One major benefactor, Harriet Shaw Weaver, took over the magazine which had been serializing his work. She decided to have his story published as a book in 1915. This generous support led to a lifelong correspondence between the writer and editor. Finances finally settled down, and Joyce continued working on Ulysses. But age reared its head, and Joyce came down with glaucoma. This debilitation would affect him for the rest of his life. This didn't slow down Joyce, of course. He continued to drink, sing, and live as a polarizing but interesting figure. Joyce would move to Paris on the way to London in 1920, and just decide to stay in Paris for 20 years. This move was hard on Nora and Giorgio, because neither of them spoke French. In fact, Italian 
became the language spoken in the household. Joyce had a daughter, Lucia, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Giorgio pursued an unsuccessful singing career, but while his family was having trouble adjusting, Joyce was thriving in the literary capital of the world through a bookshop called Shakespeare and Company, run by an American named Sylvia Beach, he would find support and connections. With Beach's help, Joyce met T.S. Eliot, Ernest Hemingway, and F. Scott Fitzgerald. How crazy would those conversations have been? Ulysses was published in serial form through a New York magazine, beginning in 1922. If you know Homer's Odyssey, then you might have guessed as to the work's influence. Each chapter mirrors the episodic structure of the Odyssey. What was innovative about Ulysses, though, was that each chapter had a unique presentation. They were unmarked as a result, since the stylistic change would implicitly inform the reader of the transition. Joyce wrote the work using stream of consciousness and monologues. It is also full of music and humor, much like Joyce's own life. Joyce took issue with the publication's censorship that changed his work significantly. He would wage this war over the changes for the next 20 years. Joyce's public squabble actually helped spread his image, if not hurting some of his financials. As always was the case with his work, Ulysses divided critics. Some, including Hemingway, praised it as a genius work of modern literature, but others wrote it off as obscene and scornful. It was banned in the UK, Ireland, and the US, but it did manage to make its way to American bookshelves in 1934 after a court ruling, at least. Debates over Ulysses exist to this day, and not just about how to analyze it. Literary scholars are actually just unsure as to which version is even the genuine book. Joyce changed his manuscript so many dang times that it is speculated printers made honest mistakes, resulting in several different variants of the novel. Joyce embarked on his final work after Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake. This would not be published until much later, in 1939. He once again baffled readers with his almost dreamlike prose. Its complicated text has helped make it Joyce's least read work. But it has spawned its own conversation, as the rest of his stories have. Before this, he finally officially got married to Nora in 1931. And after the onset of World War II, Joyce and his family would take refuge in Zurich. He would die from a perforated ulcer in January of 1941. Well, that brings this biographical recap of James Joyce's life to a close. His writing was pioneering, breaking the norms of convention to plant the seeds of modernist literature. In the next episode, I'll be summarizing and analyzing one of his stories published in Dubliners, Araby. If you enjoyed this, I hope you'll stick around for my analysis. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Perspectives on the Short Story podcast from FSU Panama City. I've been Michael, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.